0: Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you in worship. Greetings to those of you who are with us online. Uh, My name is Abby Odio, and I'm one of the pastors here at Bethany Greenlake. We are in the middle of a series on the fruit of the Spirit. And today, as we look at these words that Megan just read from Matthew's gospel, uh, we are going to consider this calling that we have to live lives that bear fruit. Uh, and focusing today on the particular fruit, which is faithfulness. So as we do that, I'm going to pray for us, and I'd ask you to join me. Uh, loving Father, we uh, read that text, and we um, come in here this morning, living in a world that sometimes feels like it's been turned upside down. God, we we sing these words of your faithfulness, and something in us quiets. And I pray in this moment, God, that um, in the midst of the chaos and confusion that is that is the world at moments that you would meet us and show us the faithful way forward. God, we believe that the truest thing is that you are indeed in control. You are indeed faithful. And so we ask this morning that uh, you would reveal yourself to us as we receive from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so one of like the sincere points of gratitude in my own story is that I have two grandmothers, both of whom I have had the gift of knowing well in my life and whom in different ways have really embodied this notion that we're going to talk about today, which is faithfulness. My dad's mother uh, has been deceased for several years now, but uh, during her life, she was a real devout Catholic. And in her later years, she tragically developed dementia And at the time this all kind of happened and it it progressed to a a pretty serious point, I was living in California. But when I would visit and come home, I would always try to make time to see her. And I'll never forget one of these visits um, because it was the first time that she actually didn't recognize who I was as her granddaughter. Some of you have walked down this road, you know it can be kind of a destabilizing moment. Um, But nonetheless, we spent time together. We went for a walk. There's a, a lake near her house, and we went and we sat and uh, it was just the two of us. And as we're sitting there, she looked at me and she said, so dear, tell me, uh, who are you? What, what is your life about? How do you spend your time? And uh, again, it was kind of this strange thing, but I proceeded to tell her, well, you know, this is, this is who I am. I, I live in Los Angeles. I'm, I'm going to seminary. I talked about sort of courses I was taking and the ones that I was enjoying, the ones that I wasn't, what I was learning. And as I finished kind of this life overview my sweet Catholic grandma looked at me and she was just brimming with approval. And she said, that is wonderful. I am so happy you're becoming a nun. (laughs) And I looked at her and I said, well, yeah, something like that, you know, uh, tomatoes, tomatoes. Uh, But over the year, her question has stuck with me. What are you about? How do you spend your time? See, implicit in that question is an understanding that the things we are about or that which we value the most deeply Will be reflected most profoundly in how we choose to live, the the decisions we make, how we we spend our money, how we kind of use our relational capital. And when the Bible speaks of people who lived with this quality of great faithfulness, the examples always highlight a commitment to God proven not with words, but with this faithful, sort of persistent action, with a, a life story that actually showed this God, this. This God, this unique God is who and what I am all about. For instance, in Hebrews 11, we see that by faith, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Rahab, all of these people, they lived with this belief in God and that belief led them to act, to actually do things they otherwise would not have done, to live a story they otherwise would not have lived. It wasn't just about this mental ascent. That belief was truly the most important thing in their life And there was this sense of coherence between what they were about and how they spent their time. And it's this link, this coherence, this commitment that lies at the heart of this this fruit, this word that is faithfulness. There's an author and theologian by the name of Stephen Garber, and he's unpacked this concept in really some great depth. In his book, The Fabric of Faithfulness, he suggests that we live in a world that lacks a cohesive moral story he would say, we spend far too little time considering that question, what is your life about? Having spent much of his career working in academia, Garber noticed that often we cultivate knowledge and skills and gifts and abilities of students and we celebrate those things and those are all good things, but we do that without offering sort of a moral overarching paradigm that considers these real important questions like to what end? How will you use these gifts? Who will you follow? To whom will you be faithful? And without considering those questions, Garber says, we often end up sort of defaulting to the scripts that are handed to us by our culture. We know these scripts well. They invite us to be faithful to stories of power or money or consumerism or kind of this moving target that is happiness or a certain perception of success. And all of that might be good and well for a time until we find ourselves in a situation where we we realize that we are actually living the wrong story that we've been faithful to a life that doesn't have roots, that doesn't have coherence. Sometimes we call that meaning. In a way, one of the few gifts of this real tragic pandemic uh, for those with eyes to see has been the way it's exposed sort of the shortcomings of the various stories to which we've ultimately been faithful, stories that are not God's stories, but lesser stories, stories that our culture will sell us about human invincibility, Stories of political affirmations grounded in paradigms of dominance, not love of neighbor. Stories that mask injustices happening around us and right here in our city. Over the last 18 months, a storm has come and it's exposed foundations, both personal and communal, and in a way asks us to return to that age-old question, to whom are you faithful? That brings us to our text today and this hard and holy moment in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's in this moment we see this very human picture of Jesus, a very relatable picture of Jesus, a Jesus who is God, absolutely, to be sure, but he is also a man. And before him lies this clear question, what will his life be about? To which story in this moment will he choose to be faithful? Will he go to the cross or will he not? And of course, that is our question. And I would say our struggle too. What are we about? What will the moments of our life story say about us? To whom will we be faithful? And so we hold that question as we look at the embodied example of Jesus who demonstrated this in a few ways. First, he demonstrated that the faithful way is always the loving way. We're gonna talk about that. And then the faithful way is the prayerful way. And finally, the faithful way is Jesus's way. So we begin with this first notion that the faithful way is a loving way. Let's focus for a moment on the three times Jesus prays in the garden as he faces this crossroads in his own story. He engages this metaphor of the cup. In the first prayer, he says to God, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. In this prayer, Jesus is speaking about the pain of the cross, which lies before him. But this notion of one drinking from the cup, it's a real important symbol that we see all throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, at several junctures, the cup is a symbol for the pain and the fallout people experience when they choose to live in a way that's out of sync with God's desire. For instance, in Jeremiah 25, God instructs the prophet to give give Israel the cup of the wine of wrath. And this instruction is hard. That word wrath, it conjures, I just want to name, it conjures for us a whole load of questions. And that's another sermon for another time. But it's important for our purposes to know that God had called Israel to be a blessing to all nations. He says, this is, this is what your life is about. And they've veered from that story. And this, this matters to God. God is passionate about justice and human flourishing for all of creation. And so Israel in this moment, they experience the response of God. They, they drink this cup that is painful to drink, a cup of natural consequences of their own action. But hold that image of the cup and stick with me as we fast forward now some 600 years back to our Matthew narrative. Here is Jesus praying that the cup would pass from him. And as he does this, three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, who he has asked to stay awake with him, sleep. And not only do they sleep, but the text tells us they are dead asleep. Like they just keep drifting further and further away from the very thing Jesus asked them to do. See, there's this thread woven throughout scripture of humanity of us falling short, falling away, falling asleep. It's Israel in the book of Jeremiah, it's the disciples in the garden, it's me more days than I care to admit. And as Jesus prays about the faithful thing to do in this moment, notice there is no audible answer from God, at least none recorded in any of the four gospels, all of which uh, include a version of this garden story. And a part of me wonders if the answer to Jesus's prayer in part was actually turning and seeing his disciples there asleep. See, Jesus knew that he was sent into the world to be an expression of God's love. This is John three sixteen, that verse we all know, for God so loved the world that he sent his son. That word love means to will the good of another. This is Jesus. This is the mission to which he's been called. And so in this moment, faithfulness, that call looks like willing the good of Israel looks like willing the good of his sleeping disciples looks like making a way for all humanity to flourish drinking the cup that they time and time again have proven they cannot drink on their own it's hard and it's difficult but faithfulness looks like love it looks like drinking that cup we recently uh, had some friends go down to Disneyland and they sent us a few photos of that trip, and we shared these photos with our kids. That was a mistake um, because they were just thoroughly mesmerized. Like they wanted to watch YouTube videos, so we pulled those up, and you know there were parades and color and characters like Frozen come to life is my son's dream. And um, the next day, we're in the car, and uh, my three-year-old, our three-year-old son Mark looked very pensive, and I said to him, "You know, buddy, what are you thinking about?" And he said, "Well, mom, I want to go to Disneyland." And I said, yeah, you know, eventually when the big sickness is over, um, that's something we, we should talk about uh, doing as a family. And he very seriously looked at me and he said, no, mom, I think I want to go to Disneyland forever. Now, I kind of laughed when he said this, but I thought of Mark's comment as I was reflecting on this notion of the faithful life. Because this is hard, but if we're not careful, we can be seduced into thinking that the faithful life is more like Disneyland than Gethsemane. By that, I mean, we can forget that our model for faithfulness as we see it in the life of Jesus is this costly and loving action on behalf of one's neighbor. It's this cup. And this is an important place for us to start because so often in our own paradigms of faith, we almost unknowingly replace this call with lesser convictions like self-protection, self-promotion. In Matthew chapter 20, James and John, so this is just six chapters before our text from today, Two of the three disciples who are now asleep in the garden with Jesus, um, they approach Jesus, James and John do, with their mother. I love this. She's like the ultimate, um, you know, helicopter parent. And she says, in your kingdom, let one of these sons of mine sit at your right and let the other one sit at your left. And when she says your kingdom, she's thinking in very practical terms. She's thinking Jesus is about to overthrow Rome. He's about to do this great thing. And James and John are thinking and hoping they'll be a part of the winning team when that happens. And notice Jesus responds to her request with a question. He says, can you drink the cup? It's a question that functions as this patient and compassionate correction. In other words, worry less about where you end up. Worry less about victory and title and reputation and more about the next loving thing that's before you. That is the cup. It's a life poured out. This is the story of faithfulness to which you've been called. That same grandmother I spoke of earlier was a deeply faithful woman in many ways. And before she became sick, she would go one day every week, hop in her old red Buick Cavalier and drive around town uh, to serve communion to folks who, for whatever reason, could not leave their home. Most of them were elderly or, or sick or they lived alone. And she would show up with them for, and just be with them in a moment in their world, literally drinking the cup, but also just embodying like a presence. And she did this faithfully for a time, even after her memory started to go, she'd have one of my aunts drive her around town to do this. And I love this picture of faithfulness because there's there's a going to, a moving towards, a a giving embodied interaction. And in this very small but significant way, it mirrors exactly how Jesus lived. Not like the religious elite who were hiding behind these walls of institutions with their privilege and their obedience to the law and calling that faithfulness. That wasn't it. Not like Peter and John who at least initially think, uh, faithfulness will earn them a comfortable seat at kind of the top of the pecking order. That's not it either. But this this gritty, it's persistent, it's self-giving, it's boundary-crossing, cup-drinking kind of love. So it's worth pausing here and just sort of doing a self-inventory, asking which of these paradigms are we living to? What are we ultimately being faithful. I found myself this week in a conversation with someone around one of the many things that exists in our world right now to argue about. And as the conversation progressed, I realized that I was no, it was no longer about what I thought was the right thing to do. It had become about me winning that conversation. And I was holding kind of this story in my mind and heart, and I just felt like the Holy Spirit saying to me, Abby, pour the cup out. Like, don't hit him over the head with it. And I thought, okay, this moment, listen, be with, show up, try to understand what's going on here underneath what I perceive as just this very wrong way to approach life. It's a loving way. And it's not easy, but we see um, in the example of Jesus that that is true, that it's not easy. But um, the text also indicates at some point that Jesus was experiencing deep distress and anguish. And so this brings us to the second truth, which is the faithful way is the prayerful way. The faithful way is the loving way, but the way that we actually embody that, we live into that, the faithful way is the prayerful way. In this garden moment, Jesus prays three times to God, and these prayers serve as a a point of strength to keep him moving faithfully towards this call to love. The first of these prayers begins with the familiar words, my father. And this title of God as father is something we see in the book of Matthew 53 times. Think about that, that's a lot. It's not that long of a book. Now it can be a confusing metaphor depending on sort of our own experience or perhaps um, not having an experience of having a father. We know that no human father is perfect. And yet that being true, this metaphor of God as the perfect parent implies something hugely important. Sam and I often tell our kids, our job is to love you and look out for you. We probably say that 10 times a day. Generally, it's paired with a boundary of sorts, like our job is to love you and look out for you so you cannot live exclusively on string cheese. We just won't let you do it. Um, That may or may not be a current battle in our home. But the point is this, the role of parent is care. It's having a vision for a child's life that that goes beyond what they can know or see in a moment and then guiding that child towards wholeness. And part of what Jesus has done really over a lifetime, I think of that... um, it's in Luke, I think Luke chapter six, where you know, he goes missing and his parents say, where are you? He said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Over a lifetime, he's been cultivating this relationship with the father, trusting, learning to trust the care of this perfect parent. So that when the moment comes and the faithful way is hard, he knows and names the truth that he is held by someone ultimately willing his very best. So Jesus prays, my father, And then he continues in that prayer with the phrase, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I love these words. Notice what Jesus does here. He tells the truth to God in prayer. He speaks honestly. I was recently at an event where I was sort of the token pastor in the room. Um, My sister and I joke, she's in medicine. And so people always go to her with their questions, like at parties, and then they always ask me to pray for the food. And so, um, We were all gathered, and someone asked if I would pray. And so I did, and it was fine. And and following that prayer, a very kind man came up to me and he said, I just wanted to thank you for praying. Um, You know, I could just, I could never pray like that. And my gut reaction was, shoot, like, why do we do that? Why do I do that? Why do I pray to impress? Why do, we, why do we understand prayer to be this thing reserved for folks who only have a degree or have arrived at a certain level of faithfulness? Like, Abby, why don't you pray honestly and, and use words you actually know the definitions of? Why don't we pray like Jesus actually prayed, which was simply to tell the truth? And sometimes that is a joyful truth. But sometimes, like here in the garden, it's a difficult wrestling. You could even say doubtful truth. And this is so important because God, the father meets us not in the flowery language of the prayers we believe we should say, but in the reality of the present moment of where we actually find ourselves today, right now. And in this moment, it's Jesus saying, God, I would really rather go this way than that way. I would really rather just leave Jerusalem if it's all the same to you. And it matters here because we remember that Jesus is both human and divine. He knows human struggle, but he is also sinless and perfect. That means that when we bring our honest struggles before God, it is not a sinful lack of faith. It's actually part of the faithful, perfect way. See, prayer is a continual and honest engagement with the Father becomes for us, like Jesus, the source of our strength. We learn to lean into the care and the sufficiency and the love of the Father when we cannot get there on our own. Now, I wanna contrast this picture of Jesus being utterly honest with God in this moment with Peter, who's one of the three disciples in the garden. Prior to this moment, Peter said, I'll never betray you, Jesus, even unto death, like I am on your team. And that was a noble proclamation, but he made it without an honest kind of prayer, an honest self-evaluation without leaning into the father and saying, here's where I'm at. I'm terrified. I cannot do this without you. Instead of prayer, he sleeps. And then eventually when push comes to shove, Peter denies Jesus. He thought he could get there without prayer and he could not. And so, In short, he thought he could be faithful apart from the father and he could not. And friends, neither can we. And that's good and hard news. And so prayer becomes for us this way of staying the course of staying in conversation with the father, doing with the father what cannot be done on our own. Many of you will remember several years ago when following her death, there were uh, some writings uh, published from Mother Teresa, some personal writings indicating That she really navigated these periods of extreme doubt in her life and ministry. There were times she knew God's nearness and times when she felt so consumed by darkness. And and she named this, she named it in letters to her trusted community. She named it to God. And some of you will remember when kind of that came out, there was sort of this sense of scandalousness around it. Like, was Mother Teresa really a saint? Was she really that good? It kind of smudged her legacy for a time. And I share that just to say, without diminishing the pain she must have felt in those spaces, I read the story of Gethsemane and wonder, what if her struggle was her strength? What if honest prayer was what kept her in relationship with God and allowed her to keep going? Friends, how many pastors do we see kind of grow to the top of these church kingdoms with confidence and with polished speeches and And then they fall hard. (laughs) And we're we're not surprised when it happens anymore. What if we were more honest as we walked along the way? If you read our text for today slowly, you'll see that Jesus's prayer actually changes. He he begins by asking God to take the cup. I I don't know that I want to do this. If there's a way out, let me take that way. But then the second time he prays, his words are slightly different. With the second prayer, notice he doesn't ask Jesus to take the cup away. Doesn't ask Jesus to take the cross away. Instead, he prays, my father, if this cannot pass, unless I drink it, your will be done. It's a slight shift, but ever so slowly through prayer, Jesus' will, Jesus' will, Jesus' story is coming into alignment with God's will, God's story through prayer. If you're anything like me, when I, I think about the way of faithfulness as it applies to who we are called to be as Christ followers in this moment in history, it can be terribly overwhelming. Uh, we all occupy multiple roles. For some of us, that is student or teacher or nurse. For others, it's parent or step-parent or spouse. For some of us, it's an employees or caretaker. And, and each of these roles feels like it comes with a load of demands, on our time, on our money, on our kind of emotional bandwidth. And all of that is an unfolding in a particular broader context of, you know, deep and important reckoning with the evils of racism, a mental health crisis, the fourth wave of a global pandemic. And in each of these spheres, there is a calling to do the faithful loving thing to show up in a faithful way. And for me, there's this tendency to sort of um, skip the moment of honest prayer and try to simply solve the puzzle on the one hand, figure out what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to do it, or to disengage entirely and just like veg out to Netflix for a few days, right? I go, to the, ex- I go the extreme and jerky way of Peter instead of the faithful, persistent, honest, prayerful way of Christ. As recent as this week, uh, this story um, invited me to assert just my own will bless, and to prayerfully say with honesty, Father, you know, I want my life to be about you and your way. And, you know, right now in this moment, I'm overwhelmed. I feel anxious. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Your will be done, God. Just start there. Maybe you pray some version of this prayer in the coming week, not solving the puzzle, but committing your way to the Father. In one of his uh, novels, there's the great author, William Faulkner, and he has a a great line. He speaks to this notion of growth through prayer. He wrote, they are not monuments, but footprints. A monument only says, at least I got this far. Well, a footprint says, this is where I was and I moved again. See these prayers Jesus prays, they're like footprints in the direction of faithfulness. He gets there, he goes to the cross, but he doesn't come on the scene as this like pre-programmed robot God. That's not how faithfulness works. It's a journey. It's a journey in prayer towards the Father. That brings us to the third and final point, which is this. The faithful way is Jesus's way. The faithful way is Jesus's way. I would argue that like most good stories, the best part of this one comes at the very end when Jesus does one of the many puzzling things that Jesus would do in his lifetime. In verse 46, we read that after finding the disciples asleep three times, Jesus says to them, get up, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, this is puzzling, at least to me, because after all that has happened in the garden, it would make sense for Jesus to simply up and go on his own, forgetting the disciples who lack faithfulness precisely in the moment when Jesus needs it the most. Instead, he says, let us be going. In other words, Jesus continues to choose a posture of faithfulness toward Peter, James, and John. In just a few verses, Judas will betray Jesus. He hands him over to a mob to be arrested. And in that very moment, Jesus calls him friend, attaches himself to Jesus, Judas in this intimate, faithful way. In just a few hours, as he hangs on the cross, Jesus will say of his killers these remarkably faithful words, Father, forgive them. And in just a few days, Jesus will come to life again. Having entered into death, he is now raised. It's as though death in Jesus' story of faithfulness is more of a footprint than a monument. It's like he continues to look at each of us, even as we show up today, imperfectly, wondering about what it means to be faithful and to say to each of us, let us keep going. Like, I still pick you. I'm still with you. You're still on my team. See, friends, we take heart in this moment because our own story has been swept up into this greater story of Jesus's faithful resurrection way. And so we keep going. It's interesting that Greek word for faithfulness is pistis, but an English synonym of the word is actually reality. And I love this connection. I I love it. It's like the truest reality in the world is the faithfulness of Christ. Like when the faithfulness of Christ is realized in our lives, that is the truest thing. That is the life for which we were created for. That is what God is continuing to work out among us. After Jesus's resurrection on the cross, these disciples um, in the garden, they finally begin to understand. They finally begin to get that this just isn't a takeover of Rome. Like this is a Jesus who is fundamentally, fundamentally doing something different among us. And they commit their lives to faithfully following what the book of Acts simply calls the way. I love that. It's like, this is the way. There are no other ways. This is the way. They begin to understand that above all, um, that might try to convince them and us otherwise, this God is faithful and his way is reality. This is what life is all about. This week, I was kind of pondering a, short, a story to share to really drive home this particular point, this particular reality. But what kept coming to mind wasn't a story, but rather this like very vivid, very um, kind of real of images from the last year and a half of you, of us as Bethany Community Church, of being in this room a few months ago as graduating seniors shared their testimonies of how God has been faithful to them over the last few years, finishing high school in a way they never imagined it would look. I thought of the Common Compassion Initiative from this spring, where our church raised over a million dollars to be given out so that unhoused neighbors can have this permanent place of belonging. I thought of Pastor Phil here at Green Lake, who has just faithfully responded to God's invitation to develop a relationship with the Duwamish tribe on whose land we worship. He's led our church in this sort of loving relationship of learning and support. I think of the several moms I've met just as a participant in our Mops ministry, moms who are faithfully showing up for their kids through online schooling, through their kids unexpectedly getting sick. I think of Dan and Allie Cole. Dan's on staff here in Together with his kids, they started a ministry to support and to celebrate kids with special needs and their families. And friends, I name all that not to pat ourselves on the back, but rather to say, these are not just one-off efforts of goodness. This is the way. This is the truest resurrection reality. And we can keep going, keep following, not because of our own strength, but because ultimately and eternally Jesus is and will be faithful. There is a story which we are living our own small chapter of. And it's a beautiful redemptive story and take heart because in this story, the pandemic does not win. Injustice does not win. War does not win. Depression does not win. So in the powerful words of Jesus, let us, let us keep going. Let's pray together. God, we pause and turn to you in this moment. And we do that not because it's the end of a sermon and that's what we do every week. We do it because we desperately and wholeheartedly need you, Father. That the faithful way is murky at best. God, we are so grateful that you continue to pursue us, that you continue to show up for us, even in the midst of pain. God, I pray that the, the narratives in our lives that tell us anything apart from your truth of resurrection and goodness, I pray, God, that those would fall away. Turn our vision to you, to that covenant Eric talked about where you say, I am committed to all creation and the flourishing of all creation, that that is the truest story. And Father, may we get in line with that, not out of a sense of guilt or I have to do this or legalism, but out of sense of there is nothing, nothing I would rather commit my life to. Life of meaning, life of hope, life of purpose. God, may we walk the way with you. Pray this in Jesus' name.